0: Uh, Take your Bibles and open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And we're going to be reading beginning in verse 1 through verse 5. Again, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Since we completed what uh, was a three-plus-year journey through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Uh, we have uh, now moved into what is our third and final sermon series for the year 2023. Uh, Upon completing our studies in the book of Acts, uh, we moved into a short study from the book of 2 Peter. Uh, Then we looked at the five Solas of the Reformation, having just completed that last Sunday. And now we move into a four-part sermon, uh, our Christmas uh, series. And so I've entitled the series, uh, Who Is uh, This King of Glory? Uh, that's, of course, uh, you'll recognize a, a kind of a stolen title. Uh, it is uh, the title of one of my favorite uh, contemporary Uh, Christian songs, and uh, it asks and answers the question as to who this king is, and that is what we're going to attempt to do uh, in these few weeks, uh, that as we prepare our hearts uh, to celebrate uh, the greatness of the one who is indeed, who is most assuredly uh, the king of glory. Now, I would suspect that the only thing that's more likely to create eager anticipation on your part of a sermon from the biblical genealogies is the announcement of two sermons from those genealogies. Now, you're familiar with what I'm talking about when I speak of the genealogies of the Bible. Those are the portions of Scripture that you either fall asleep reading or you're all of a sudden become an expert speed reader. But as Lee Corso says, not so fast. There is far more here than meets the eye. If every word of Scripture is purposeful, and there is nothing in Scripture that is pointless, then perhaps these lengthy lists serve a purpose, even a crucial purpose. In fact, they are pertinent. To proving the author's point. In the case of Matthew's genealogy, it serves as a starting point for his affirmation and proof that beyond any reasonable doubt, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both the promise made to Abraham as well as the fulfillment of the promise made to David. The promise of a great kingdom. Ruled by a great king. And so, in these genealogies, we're going to span about 2,000 years of biblical history, the history recorded in the Old Testament. And in coming weeks, I guess next week, I will talk a little more about how uh, this particular genealogy is structured and how it's divided up. It's somewhat interesting, but I'm, just, I'm going to jump into these first uh, five verses uh, this morning. But we can be sure of this, and this uh, certainly was upon the heart and mind of the gospel writer Matthew uh, as he uh, wrote, that the Jews were in a time of great anticipation and they were indeed asking uh, the question, where is this king that was promised to us? In fact, where is this kingdom, this great nation that was uh, promised to us? Uh, uh, There was a whole where and who and when and why the delay and how will this all come to pass? Well, the genealogies demonstrate for them and for us how all of this has and is coming uh, to pass. Uh, They demonstrate that God is a faithful God. He is always faithful, and He's always able to do that which He promises. While we do see that these individuals demonstrated extraordinary faith, they are also capable of succumbing to frailty, fickleness, and futility. The genealogies prove that the hero of the Bible is always God. As he, without fail, always overcomes the failure and even the faithlessness of men. So, let's see if we can answer the question, who is this king Of glory. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you, his name is Jesus, and he and he alone is beyond any shadow of a doubt, beyond any reasonable question, he and he alone is the promised and long awaited king. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amimadab, and Amimadab the father of Nashon, and Nashan the father of Salman, and Salman the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we study this word, that the spirit that inspired yes, even inspired these genealogies. They are included for a particular purpose. And Lord, may we understand uh, what you have revealed to us. May we, in the names that are recorded here, may we be reminded of your faithfulness throughout all generations, that you were faithful in presenting your Son, our King, and you will be faithful in preserving us until the day that we see indeed our great and glorious King, our King Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll bless us in our gathering here today, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Gospels, each, all four of them, each have, in some sense, a unique purpose, but those purposes or that purpose somewhat overlaps. Uh, In the last few weeks, we've uh, preached uh, two sermons from the Gospel of John we've made reference to that prologue in the Gospel of John and John's great purpose the task that he uh, sets about is to prove to demonstrate that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God he is the the word who uh, uh, was with God and he was God and that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and he wrote those things so that what so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in Him we may have salvation. Now, there's a great sense where that's the purpose of every book of the Bible, okay? Uh, But for John, he has a little different take, a little different perspective uh, than the other gospel writers. He very quickly sets his gospel in the context of eternity, while the other gospel writers set their uh, biblical record in the course of human history, a history that has been designed by God himself to be uh, uh, entered into by the incarnate Son of God for the accomplishment of an eternal purpose, namely the redemption of the people of God, the elect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man And Mark presents Jesus as God's servant. But Matthew presents Jesus as the predicted, promised, and prophesied king. So according to Matthew's genealogy, and in keeping with his overarching and uh, unique purpose, Jesus is the rightful heir, the promised heir to the throne of David, in other words, he is the fulfillment of the covenant made with David that was recorded in, Matthew, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and following. Jesus is also the fulfillment of the great promises made to the patriarch, Abraham. So God is the faithful God who makes and keeps his promises. God will accomplish his purpose even if he brings his purpose to pass by raising it out of the rubble and ashes of human failure, even human rebellion. Matthew's first verse grabs our attention by linking the Lord Jesus Christ with two of the three towering figures of the Old Testament. We see that Jesus has a distinct and a unique uh, connection to listed first in verse 1, the great king David, and also a link to the great patriarch whose name is Abraham. And so, one of the features of the biblical record, uh, the testimony of God's pattern of working in the world, is that God is working out the triumph of redemption. That is, he delivers his people from the implications of his own curse upon the world. Now, this doesn't mean that God's people don't experience the painful consequences of living in a fallen world. They do, and we do. We live with the experience of the consequence of the rebellion of our first parent, Adam, and our ongoing rebellion. However, it is through God's powerful grace that he demonstrates his sovereign power, purpose, and plan to bless his people and accomplish that great goal of revealing and applying his glory in this thing that we call redemption, this working out of salvation, this application of salvation. In the very traditional, very familiar Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, and in the third stanza, and it's interesting, as I went to Google to find, I knew the stanza, I just needed to look at it in print. And tragically, it seems like many of the versions are leaving this crucial stanza out of this wonderful Christmas confession, Joy to the World. But it goes like this, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. And then the refrain, far as the curse be found, far as the curse be found, far as, far as the curse be found. So, this great king of glory is the, the one who indeed initially is in some sense going to mitigate the realities of the curse by calling people to redemption, by calling uh, Abraham to live in a covenant uh, with him, and ultimately he will fully and finally consummate the perfect work of redemption from the realities of of the curse, the curse not only of thorns and thistles and all of the implications that we've talked about over all the years of how they infect the ground, but how this terrible tragedy of death continues to take its toll upon each of us. It seems like one of the great themes of of fairy tales is the story of a handsome prince or a great king coming to redeem a people from a curse? You can kind of rehearse that in your minds. You know the stories, but to be sure, this is no fairy tale. This is this is reality. And if 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 you can can see this, and and this is this is why sometimes. <laughs> Our eyes glaze over when we get to the genealogies. Uh, That's why we, oh, yeah, I got that. We flip the page. You know, you give it a little scan. We're not fully aware of God's work of redemption that intrinsically flows through each and every name and each and every story and how these individuals, although they are living in a real world under the curse, the curse pronounced by God because of the rebellion of Adam, God is redeeming and God is delivering and even giving victory over this great curse. Now, let me, let me go back and just kind of remind you, because again, I want you to get the framework of this. In fact, you can somewhat look at the Bible and particularly the Old Testament as the contrast between blessing and cursing. And the Bible begins with a blessing, the creation blessing, the design of everything that is. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11, God pronounces that the earth will bring forth vegetation, and it was good. And in chapter 1, verse 24, that the earth should bring forth living creatures. And it was good. And then by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, God uniquely and specifically designs those that are described as individuals, male and female, that bear the very image of God. And he has designed creation. He has given them dominion over this earth, and he charges, and he challenges, and he commands these image bearers, those that are to, to mark the world with his presence, that they are to have dominion, they are to be fruitful, they're to eat the fruit of the land and enjoy it, and they are designed as male and female to live in this unique community that we call the family, that we call marriage, and they're divine, designed to live together in complementary, compatible, complete, and as Essential contributors to fulfilling this blessed mandate. That is, God designed us and gave us the gift of living in community. The most basic being the family. And when that basic blessing of family is threatened, then all of humanity suffers because of that threat. In fact, as chapter 2 of the book of Genesis closes, and this very beautiful yet provocative phrasing is found, that, that God brought the woman to the man, and he recognizes her and declares that, that she is flesh of his flesh, that he recognizes that she's very much like him, yet in a delightful way, different from him. And he receives her, and the comment is that they were naked and unashamed. Very loaded statement. but it is the, the concept that they were going to live in this complementary community the family, in unconditional and total acceptance of one another. And one of the repercussions of the fall is that we have lost this concept of unconditionally accepting one another. As I mentioned a minute ago, because it is not there in marriage, it works its way out in fracturing every human Relationship. So again, the result of the curse is not only estrangement from God, but estrangement from one another. And we wrestle with that all of our days. Now, particularly if you'll remember, God told Adam, it's all yours. Here are your marching orders. But there is a tree in the midst of the garden. And you're not to eat of it. And if you do, you will surely die. So God had given a clear prohibition. Among the abundant blessings of creation, there was one prohibition. Don't eat of a particular tree. But Adam did. And all of humanity followed him in the fall. And we live with the ramifications of the curse in the midst First of all, what God describes in Genesis 3.15 as a cosmic conflict between two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That the family, not just the woman, and this, this, this has widespread implications. Genesis 3.16, that there shall be pain in childbearing. To, to be sure, there's going to be barrenness. There, there's going to be infertility, we're going to pervert the whole process, there's going to be this present curse that we're dealing with now of abortion, there's going to be turmoil in the parent-child relationship, that indeed, that the whole process of being fruitful is joined, the joy is joined with the pain of living under the realities of painful childbearing. That that in fact, there's going to be domestic unrest. That a part of the curse is the woman shall constantly seek to usurp the authority of the man and pervert the creation design, the creation mandate, the creation order. And that they shall live no longer on an earth that naturally produces and easily produces that which the man shall eat, shall, shall rely upon for his livelihood. But the ground is going to be cursed because of Adam's rebellion. All of humanity shall eat all the days of their life in pain, in agonizing toil because the ground will produce thorns and thistles. And then... Man is rendered homeless. That is, the the safety, the security, uh, the provision, the satisfaction that was theirs, to be theirs in the fullest in the garden, was lost. And they were banished from the garden. And man, every individual from that day forward, has been searching for that which he lost under the curse. And they look for it, and they search for it, and they strive for it, never realizing that the only place and the only person in which that deep angst, that, 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 that deep-seated need can be satisfied is in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, who is this King of Glory? Son of God, Son of Man, His name is Jesus. And He is the King that shall reverse the curse incurred by Adam. A curse inherited by us from Him. He is the King who welcomes us into the safety and security of His kingdom. He is our Prince of Peace. He is also our warrior King who has conquered our wandering, rebellious hearts. And it's in Him and Him alone. That we find rest. Again, not only has he conquered, but in his conquest, he will ultimately reverse the groaning of creation by lifting the curse from the earth. He will unite our hearts to him and all believers in perfect harmony. He will bring peace on earth and goodwill to all men with whom he is well pleased. He will even remove this curse of death, this reality of mortality from his people. And so right now, right in this moment, we live in the reality of there is a now in the curse being mitigated, and there's a not yet of its complete removal. There is a an already and there's an awaited. And so we wait like those whose names are on the genealogy or in the genealogy. We await by faith, for that day when our king returns who will make all things new. And we are safe, we are secure, we are satisfied in him until the task is complete. And so what we see in the genealogy, and I'll try to hit some highlights here, is in effect, God... Mitigating, restoring, in some sense, reverses the implication of this great and colossal curse that all men live on to work through these very frail, very feeble individuals to present the one who shall ultimately and who shall finally make all things new and reverse This terrible curse. So the first name we want to give consideration to, again, back in verse 1 of our text, and I call it God Enables the Unable. God Enables the Unable. That is, left to ourselves without God's intervention on our behalf, no matter what we accomplish and what we attain in this life, The curse of death will win, as God said. From dust you were taken and to dust you shall return. But by faith, we know that the dust doesn't get the final say. The dust isn't the final word on those of us that know our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. And so we see, if we were to kind of rehearse the biblical story, if you want to flip back, I'm not going to have to because I've got to really hit the high spots here. But the first name I want to give consideration to is Abraham. Again, mentioned in verses 1 and verses 2 of our genealogy. We're familiar with Abraham and he is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12. One of the things that you need to note about Genesis chapter 12 is it comes after Genesis 1 through 11. Y'all didn't know that, did you? See, I'm, all, I, you know, I'm giving you new information here, okay? But you have to see that this call of Abraham is a call to an individual who is living with the implications of this curse that we've been talking about. Estrangement, cursed ground, painful childbearing, on and on it goes. And specifically, he is called out of this dispersal of humanity that occurred after the rebellion at Babel. If you'll remember, after God delivers his people by the ark, delivers them uh, through the, the flood... Uh, his plan is to disperse the people and populate the nations, populate the world. What do, they have a better idea that what we're going to do, we're going to congregate here on the plains of Shinar, and we're going to build a tower that will reach into the heavens, not for the glory of God, not solely Deo Gloria, but so that we may make a name for ourselves, so that we will be remembered. You hear a lot of talk in our day and time about our legacy. Well, let me tell you, your legacy ain't going to last long. I can assure you of that. But the glory of God will be forever. And so this man, Abraham, is called from a place of security, or at least supposed security, that being his clan his family, okay? And we, you can go back to another genealogy if you don't get enough genealogy today, and you can see how the, population, the earth was populated through the descendants of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, I'm not a good enough uh, linguist and all of these different types of things that are utilized in biblical studies. But you can actually go to that genealogy uh, that were given after the account of Babel. And you can account for a great number of the nations throughout the world. You can, you can see who their ancestors were. Uh, and it's, it's really quite interesting. But our concern biblically is one particular descendant of a man named Tira who at least as far as I can tell from the biblical record, was a pagan idolater living among a family of pagan idolaters. And God calls him by his grace to a unique relationship with him, and he chooses to establish a covenant with this particular man whose name is initially Abram, later Abraham. And the promise, and remember when he's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, I'm going to make you a great nation, which was the idea, again, the the family, the clan, the tribe was that which would become a nation, and he's 75 years old, and he doesn't have any children, and so again, he is unable, really, to fulfill his part of uh, the covenant, and so Genesis goes on to explain that in Genesis 15 and 17, uh, this covenant is uh, renewed, and and Abraham is curious. Wait a minute, God. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, time has passed, and I've been waiting, and I left behind what's familiar. And you said you were going to make a great nation. In fact, my descendants would be like the stars of the heaven but I'm still childless. In fact, somebody that's not even related to me is going to get everything I got. You know, as we say, one day somebody will go through my stuff as well. And so all my stuff is going to be left to somebody that's not related. And God says, no, 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 no. You you trust me Yeah, you're you're in the painful experience of childbearing and the fact that you're not bearing a child right now, but you're living with the reality of this curse. But I'm going to fulfill my promise. And, And the story moves on. Here's the thing. Remember, part of the curse, they're outside of the promised land, originally the land being Eden. So Abraham goes to the place God told him to go. And then we find out there's a famine in the land. Why is there a famine in the land? Because thorns and thistles are going to be produced by the ground. The ground is under a curse. And he, he goes off to Egypt and Pharaoh takes a liking to Sarah. Wait, wait, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you see the dramatic tension? Land, well, he's not there. Children, he doesn't have any. And his wife is going to wind up in the harem of a Middle Eastern Pharaoh, Middle Eastern king. And so the whole program seems to be under threat. But God has a plan. And so God... Proves that he is faithful, and tragically speaking, Abraham and Sarah decide that God needs a little help. That obviously she's too old to have children, and he is too. And so they conceive a plan. Sarah says, Hey, I've got this handmaiden. Her name is Hagar. So, you and her get together and 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 we 'll help god we 'll we'll help God figure this thing out now, what could go wrong with a plan like that? Ah. I mean, nobody can see any red flags there, can they now we 've talked about the land, and if you, those of you that know the biblical story there 's boundaries described, and people ask me all the time, well, what about this business in israel well I'm not sure. I don't know a whole lot about the business in Israel. But it is interesting that these descendants of Abraham still know they're descendants of Abraham. I don't know how many people know that they're descendants from these other cats that lived in the ancient world. But people know if they're descendants of Abraham. And they're in the land that God said was going to be theirs. And all the other people hate it. So, I don't know. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how it all plays out. But ultimately what? God delivers. In fact, when God finally tells them again and reminds them, hey, about a year from now, you're going to have this child. And they laughed. So that's what they named the kid, Isaac, laughter. And so we can ridicule Abraham for his lapses. And they were They were great. They were serious. But when God called him to take that precious and unique son, and you go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, Abraham saddled up his donkey, and he went and he took that beloved son prepared to offer him. In one sense, a picture of the gospel. In another sense, the gospel is completed when there is a substitute for the beloved son, and the knife fell on the substitute. But let me tell you, 2,000 years later, the son would not be spared, and the knife would fall upon the beloved son, whose name is Jesus. Well, again, the story continues, Pain pain and childbearing. Isaac lives, and he needs a wife. And Abraham's like, no, 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 not just any wife. I mean, you know, nobody's good enough. Y'all know the picture. Y'all know the drill. You go get one from the homeland. And they do. And guess what? She's barren. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Great nation. Barely got this one kid. He goes out. Is the nation going to be fulfilled through him? And what happens? She's barren. And then she has a couple of very troubled twins. And they produce, those twins produce a very troubled history uh, together and apart. And so what happens? Well, Genesis finally closes. And that family's blessed. It's now large. But they're not in the land that's promised. And they, will ultimately wind up being slaves as prophesied for 400 years. They're, they're going to be a great nation, growing to many millions most likely, but they don't have the land and they don't have a king and they don't have this special relationship with God. So the question as Genesis closes is how's God going to deal with it? and he will. Well, let's look at two other issues real quickly from the genealogy. I've got to do this quickly. I wanted to kind of set this. The second issue found in verse 5 from the genealogy is God enlists the unacceptable. We find that unacceptable person's name is a woman whose name is Rahab. She's introduced to us in Joshua chapter 2. First of all, she's a Gentile. Second of all, worse worse than that, she is a prostitute. And yet God is going to include her in the genealogy. In fact, if you go look, and most of the genealogy is made up of men's names, except for a few, and I think without exception, I'll have to go back and look. But at least most of them are women with some questionable behaviors, characteristics, and family trees, to say the least. And so Rahab is a prostitute, which is the very picture of the perversion and the reality of pain and childbirth, of this estrangement from one another, this relational dysfunction, this perversion of naked and unashamed. In fact, they're naked and shameful is the situation there. So you see the, the blessings are reversed. And this incredible lady... Living in a city that seems impregnable, that that seems to be a fortress able to withstand anything, she hears of this bunch of nomads traversing across the desert and even having wandered for 40 years, and she decides that her city is in peril and that she shall cast her lot with this bunch of nomads that God by grace revealed to her the very truth of the gospel. She went so far as to lie to those that came looking for the spies that had sought refuge in her house. You see God's providential ways of preserving and protecting his people. And so she believed, she placed her trust in the God of, Of these wandering people, the God of these spies. Now, one question for those of you that love to study ethics, I hope if you don't study them, you at least practice them. Come on. What do you make of the fact that when asked about these spies, she lied to them? They're gone. It's the same question that that people ask. What do you make of those people in Nazi Germany that lied to the Nazis to protect and deliver Jews to safety in the midst of the Holocaust? I'm not going to answer the question for you. I'd like for you to think about things. But by faith, this prostitute Rahab is included in the line. And she is going to have an offspring whose name is Boaz, who's included in the line. And let's look at the third name. God employs the unlikely. The other, one of the other women included in this genealogy is a woman by the name of Ruth. Maybe some of you think, my life has gotten off to a terrible start. You don't know my family. You don't know our story. Let me tell you about Ruth's story. Her ancestors were conceived by an act of incest by a man whose name was Lot. And that later her nation would be guilty of seducing the men of Israel into profound and gross acts of immorality on the plains of Moab and 24,000 of those men would perish on that day. I would think there'd be a bit of a red flag over a woman who is a Moabite. But yet the story of Ruth opens and introduces us to a family that's living in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and the irony is what? In the house of bread there is no bread. There's a famine in the land because of the cursed ground and eventually they leave and go to Moab where the sons of this man Elimelech marries two Moabite women and the men die. And so here's the mother, Naomi, who is childless, who has fled home because of of a famine and she has no descendants. She's living with the pain of childbearing. She is estranged from the land, the place of security that God promised. What's she to do? And again, like Rahab before her, by faith, she clings to that mother-in-law, Naomi. And you know this great confession. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. I'm going with you. You have introduced me to one greater than I am. And she returns to Bethlehem. And Naomi tries to discourage her and says, look, I'm already old. There's not going to be someone that I'm going to have that can be your husband. You need to just stay here and do the best you can. And Ruth follows. And in the wise providence of God and in a testimony To his faithfulness, this descendant of a Gentile prostitute, whose name is Boaz, just so happens, just lucky, Ruth caught his eye. Ruth caught his eye. And he determines that he is going to claim her as his bride. What a great picture of the gospel. And and, and in some ways, Ruth is the very zenith of unloveliness. And yet this man claims her as his bride, the very picture of Christ redeeming and claiming his unbeautiful, his sinful bride out of the world. And God, in his great wisdom, his great goodness, His great sovereign plan, those that left empty as the book of Ruth closes are left as full. As this woman, Ruth, will bear a son, and his name shall be Obed. And Obed is going to have a child, and his name is going to be Jesse. And then Jesse is going to have a child, and his name is going to be David. And God is going to look at David and declare that he is a man after his own heart. And he is going to be the link in the unbroken golden chain by which God is going to intervene in the world to reverse the curse, through which he is going to reverse the pain of childbearing, and in fact, he is going to deliver a child who shall bring about the great blessing of redemption. And so we close there with Ruth in the land, prosperous provided for, secure and redeemed and fruitful. The line of the king is established. There's actually domestic tranquility in Boaz and Ruth in this terrible period of history of the judges, as described three different times in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But God was faithful To redeem a people, to accomplish a plan established long ago, even in the garden. The seed of the woman, the blessing to the nations through Abraham, the one that shall descend from a Gentile prostitute and a Moabite. He's going to be my king the king of a great kingdom who is going to accomplish redemption from this great curse that all men live under. And so now, here, today, the reality is the curse has been defeated, okay? Now that's the, that's the now, it's been defeated there's still ramifications and consequences, but we live by faith anticipating what? The not yet. The consummation, the complete eradication of every aspect of this curse that has been defeated by the one who is, who is, who is this King of glory, whose name is Jesus. The air, the son... David, the son of Abraham, and the son of so many others that we'll take a second look at next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness uh, throughout all generations. You are faithful. Even though we be faithless, You are faithful. As we come to this portion of the service, we're reminded of your faithfulness, of how by your taking the curse upon yourself, by your suffering the consequences of our sin and rebellion, we have been ushered in into the care of a good and a great and a perfectly glorious king whose name is Jesus. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.